All right. So the tickets for the uh, St. John and Exiles, just for to get a sense of how many people are coming. So um, that's pretty much all it's for, just to note that. And then um, did we announce about the, the Steve McQueen movie? I don't know if I was in the zone. Okay, yeah, they're coming. They're gonna. There's gonna be a movie. I think the date is in your bulletin, but the movie is created or was uh, based on the book. I bought the book recently for my dad. I heard Greg Laurie on the radio who wrote the book, and then I guess he produced the movie as well. And I remember growing up watching The Great Escape probably as much as I watched the movie Star Wars, which was a lot of times. <laughs> but uh, you know that American icon that God saved him at the end of his life. I think he used Billy Graham, if I remember right. So it's a interesting. Uh, should be an interesting uh, depiction of his life if you guys are interested in that. Uh, Pastor Ray is uh, sick, so keep him in your prayers. He's When he gets that chest cold and cough going, it's difficult for him to teach. So uh, he's out today and hopefully back soon. So keep him in your prayers <clears throat> for a swift recovery, especially since it's going to be a busy couple weeks here with the pastor's conference and the castle coming up. So please pray for him. With that, let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 5. We're going to read the first 19 verses. Then we'll pray. Uh, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Oh, and if you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and one of the ushers will get it for you and help you out there. So run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See, see now and know, and seek in her open places if you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth. And I will pardon her, though they say, as the Lord lives. Uh, surely they swear falsely. O Lord, are, you not, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have, not, they have refused to receive correction. And they have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. Therefore I said, surely these are poor, they are foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. So I'll go to the great men and speak to them, for they have known the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. But these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. And therefore a lion from the forest shall slay them, a wolf of the desert shall destroy them. A leopard will watch over their cities. Everyone who goes out from there shall be torn in pieces, because their transgressions are many. Their backslidings have increased. And how shall I pardon you for this? Your children have forsaken me, and sworn by those that are not gods, when I fed them to the full. Then they committed adultery and assembled themselves by the troop in the harlot's house. And they were like well-fed, lusty stallions, everyone made after his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord, and shall I not avenge myself on, these, on such a nation as this? Go up to her walls and destroy, but do not make a complete end. Take away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously with me, says the Lord. They have lied about the Lord and said it is not he, neither will evil come upon us, nor shall we see sword nor famine and the prophets become wind, for the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. Therefore says the Lord God of hosts, because you speak this word, behold, I will make my words in you, your mouth, fire, and the people wood, and it shall devour them. 
Behold, I will bring a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, says the Lord. It is a mighty nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty men, and they shall eat you up, eat up your harvest and your bread. Which of your sons and daughters should eat? They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees, and they shall destroy your fortified cities in which you trust with the sword. Nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord, I will not make a complete end of you. And it will be when you say, why does the Lord do all this, these things to us? Then you shall answer them. Just as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in, the land, in your land, so shall you serve aliens in a land that is not yours. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, uh, uh, we, we read your word, and we know uh, as, as we've trusted you, Lord, we've believed in you, and yet there's a constant uh, battle within our hearts to be drawn away uh, by the idols of the world, Lord. Not necessarily idols made of stone or of wood or gold, but, Lord, things that capture our hearts. And we pray that you would help us in our pursuit of you, Lord, to have a heart after you and not after the things that we see around us, Lord. I pray that you would fix our eyes on Christ, uh, the author and finisher of our faith, who's given himself for us, Lord, and he's uh, paid the price for our redemption and our, uh, the healing uh, of our souls, Lord. And we pray that you would <clears throat> open up our eyes to see wondrous things out of your law as you speak, Lord. Uh, and you would give us understanding, Lord. And you would remove uh, the deceptions that have c captured our hearts, Lord. The deceptions of the pleasures of sin. The deception of wrong thinkings, Lord, that so easily come into our hearts. Lord, we open ourselves to what you want to do in our lives. We ask for a fresh work of your Holy Spirit uh, to to cause us to follow you, to cause us to know you, and to experience the greatness of who you are through Jesus Christ, Lord. And we thank you for our time together to worship and praise you. We thank you for the, uh, the worship team who's led us in these songs. And we ask that you would uh, fill our hearts with a heart of praise as it keeps our focus on you throughout these days that we live where there's so much to do, so many distractions. But as we praise you, Lord, our eyes are lifted up. And as you told us, Lord, to set our affections on things above, the praise does that in our hearts as we look to you. And we praise you for that and give you honor uh, that you're constantly drawing us as well. And we pray that you just have your way in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right. So I've been going through the book of Jeremiah in my, you know, in the mornings. And I uh, came across this the other day and uh, started thinking about when Jeremiah was prophesying, when he was sharing with the people. And it's kind of this unique timing that happened with this prophecy. So, um, you know, it's good to, sometimes you can draw parallels. You look at the kings in, king, in the book of Kings. You can see the timing of um, their reigns. And then you can see when the prophets prophesied in parallel to that. And at this particular time, uh, Josiah had begun his reign in 640 BC. 
right? And we know Josiah was one of the great kings of Israel, or Judah, I'm sorry. And during his reign, he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, right? Um, and Jeremiah's prophecy uh, began shortly after, at 627 B.C., right? B.C. goes down instead of up because it's going towards zero. So it's actually after. Um, and then just before uh, Josiah begins his reforms, Jeremiah begins to share his message. Uh, so I'll explain Josiah's reforms in a minute, but Jeremiah begins to share like his prophecies that were given in chapters 1 through around chapter 6 and in those early days of his ministry. And a lot of his ministry was done during the reign of a good king, and yet the message is very negative. Uh, interestingly enough, it's, it's negative in the sense that it, it points out this wandering heart of the nation of Judah that, um, you know, because of the evil reign of King Manasseh who came before Josiah, um, the hearts of the people were drawn after the idols of the nations that surrounded Judah and Israel. And they pursued those things um, and, or they had the desire for those same gods, and they began to worship them, and they began to set up idolatrous practices within, even within the temple itself. Uh, and Ezekiel pointed that out. He showed the hearts of what was going on. Uh, I think it's Ezekiel chapter 8. But he revealed the hearts of what was going on of the people, of the priests especially, that there was abominations and idolatry in the temple itself, which was supposed to be dedicated to the Lord. And those things were, in the Old Testament, they were worthy of, of death. So, so, but just to keep that timeline in your mind, that Jeremiah began to prophesy, including this chapter, and then shortly thereafter, in 622 B.C. and 621 B.C., Josiah begins his great reforms, or, and, and literally tries to demolish every instance of idolatry in the nation of Judah. And in a lot of ways, he accomplishes it in the outward. So his heart was right, jo Josiah's heart. And we read, we don't have to turn there, we read in 2 Kings chapter 23, we li he lists out all the things that he did uh, to reform the nation of Judah. And it says that, in, in verse 3, it says, The king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant were th that were written in the book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. <clears throat> and so, you know, you see in Josiah, he's standing by this pillar, and you wonder if it's by himself or if there's people around, you don't know, but you just get this sense that this was this defining moment where um, he decided, I'm going to wholly follow what the Lord has called me to do. And what he did during that time he made the law to be read aloud again. They rediscovered the law with the priest Hilkiah, so they found the book of the, the law, the Torah. And they, it's like it was gone. It was out of their sights. They had been so caught up in the idolatrous practices of the nations around them, they forgot the very thing that they were bound to as a nation and that all their blessings were tied to the law in the books of you know Deuteronomy especially, uh, but also in Exodus, the law that was given the promised land was bound to their obedience and the blessings of the promised land and their inheritance as the people of God. Um, 
And so Josiah made that to be read again in the midst of the people. And he led the people to do the same, to follow the law, and he himself was going to follow it with all his heart. And anything that he found that was for the purpose of false worship, it was cleansed, whether it was in the temple or whether it was idolatrous priests who led the people in this wrong thinking. He destroyed it. Uh, he destroyed wooden images that were found in the temple. He de destroyed the ritual booths that were used for idolatrous practices, which often had a connection with prostitution or with some pornographic image of some sort. Uh, he destroyed all of it. Um, he tried to root out all the priests, the ones that he could find. So when he found priests that in other high places, so there was this idea of the high places, places of worship that weren't ordained by God. And these may be to worship the, the idols that were set up by Jeroboam from the, from the north, uh, the north kingdom of Israel, which was taking Jehovah and making an image out of Jehovah as like a calf, right? And that's kind of like what they did back in the Exodus. He, if he found any of that in Judah, and even in Bethel, which was in the northern kingdom, and parts of Samaria, he destroyed it. So he started to even go back into, you know, uniting the worship of the one true God. This is Josiah. Um, he began to even encroach into the, nation, the northern kingdom and started to destroy their uh, places of false worship. Um, and he, re he removed all the special altars. And he was the only one. If you look through the book of Kings, like he's the only one that really removed this, the high places, right? And, and all the others, they kind of let them stay there because they didn't want to deal with the repercussions of removing them. Even good kings that did good things like uh, Hezekiah, right? But Josiah was one who went through and he cleaned it all out. And, um, and he executed all the priests that he could find, as I mentioned that. And he kept the Passover like it had never been kept before. And he removed all the abominations and the, the witchcraft and the spiritists that he found. He removed them all. And, he, and as a king, he had both the right and the power to carry out this sort of judgment as the leader of the nation. So, you know, governments have certain delegated powers in order to enforce order. In Israel, they had a greater, they had a greater law um, where they were supposed to execute false worship, right, and execute where people went after other gods or execute people. This is capital punishment for witchcraft. Uh, whereas in our nation, you know, we don't necessarily have that. Um, but in their nation where it was a, you know, a covenant between God and the people, the, the, the law itself forbade those things. So even as Josiah began to do these reforms, it was not long-lived. And you kind of start to wonder, you know, were these people just going around? Because eventually Josiah dies. Um, but I'm sure many of the people who were around during the reforms lived on. And yet their hearts were nowhere near what Josiah's was to follow after the Lord. Um, so you wonder, during this time, were they just going through it from an outward standpoint? Like, were they just doing it for show? Because Jeremiah's message exposes the hearts of these people, that it was after, still after the idols. So it was this very short-lived um, revival, if you will. And as we read here, as we read in this chapter, we start to see the sorts of things that came out 
you know, that in verse 2, they, they have this sort of this false sense that the Lord was with them. Lord, so they'll, they'll make a statement like, the Lord liveth, right? Um, and in stating, that, like, oh, the Lord liveth, you know, yet having this hypocrisy where, you know, they're, in their hearts they're going after these gods of the nations around them, yet they're saying, oh, yeah, you know, God's my God. It's so like... Uh, religion, if you will. When I say that religion, I mean, I grew up in a very, I had an interesting upbringing. You know, I had, uh, I brought up in the Catholic Church and Protestant Church, you know, so I oftentimes had to go to church twice, and I didn't want to. <laughs> so my heart wasn't there, yet there was this sense of, you know, there would, there would people who would be looking on and, you know, oh, you go to church twice, wow, you know, or, you know, to see these outward things. Uh, and, and, you know, in my experience, going, you know, either, whether it's traveling um, in other countries or interacting with people from other religions, whether it's Hindu or Muslim or whatever it might be, I had this sense that there's always an appeal to the outward, what you can do, what you show people that you do. And, you know, there's a lot of people that I've interacted with who are from India, and they've come here to work and everything. And, you know, and they'll say it. They'll explain it very uh, clear to me. They'll say, oh, you know, I kind of live this way when I'm here, but when I'm, when I'm with my family, I kind of go back to some of the more Hindu roots. And so we talk about those things. And I, I don't, like, look down upon them because I had the same sort of thing. You know, I had the same sort of heart when I was in, you know, the, the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, that I was going to church and I would think of myself as doing pretty well with God. But the reality was my heart was far from the Lord. Um, and so only God can expose that in our hearts, that we really don't love God oftentimes, that it's, not, it's an outward thing, right? And so God was exposing that in the people here through Jeremiah. <clears throat> And Jeremiah had this incredible call and a courageous call from God to give a message when, although Josiah's heart was right, it seems to be that the heart of the people wasn't the same as Josiah, and therefore Jeremiah had to give the message. Now, there were others. It wasn't just Josiah. You know, you have guys like Zephaniah. There's, he was one of the minor prophets, right? There's a book of Zephaniah. Or Baruch, who was a friend of Jeremiah. These were righteous men. But in this first verse, too, it says that there was, look for anyone that might be righteous, you know, and I'll spare this city. Now, there's this interesting thing, like, um, with the Lord, where I, I don't know what causes him to spare a whole city, you know, what number it is. But when God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, there was a righteous man there. He was, he was uh, his name was Lot, right? And God spoke to Abraham that if you could find so many righteous men, and, and Abraham kind of works down the numbers, right, over time with God. But God didn't spare the city. So the numbers didn't hit what God had wanted. And I, what that number is, how do we know that? Only God knows, you know. But, at one, but God at least spared the individual, right? He spared Lot. He took him out of the city, and he 
gave that same offer to his family. It turned out only his children survived, his wife stayed. Um, but you wonder the same thing here with Josiah, that God spared Josiah. He didn't, the judgment didn't come in his lifetime, but it came after. Um, and so he, can he find anyone in the streets that, who seek truth, and I will pardon her, you know. And I think God already knew that there wouldn't be enough, so he, and you know, the other interesting thing, with Josiah's obedience, the nation experienced an extended time of blessing. What if Josiah didn't obey? Would, the, would, would have Babylon have come earlier? Maybe. We don't really know. It's sort of a uh, hypothetical, right? So we don't know the, the end result. But God did spare Josiah. We see his mercy in this. Uh, but Jeremiah's courage to continue to bring the message, even though it might not be popular. Um, and so he goes on, and he's like, um, in Jeremiah in verse 3, you know, O oh Lord, you're, are not your eyes on the truth? You know, he can see through their false, uh, their swearing falsely as the Lord lives. He can see through it, and he knows exactly what's going on. And that he had brought correction in the past. So he brought other nations to try to get their attention, the Assyrians especially. And God used um, Hezekiah to help uh, stop that oncoming, incoming onslaught. Whereas the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, was taken away. The southern kingdom resisted it. But it was still a time of great difficulty as the, uh, many other cities within the, within the nation of Judah were taken. Um, and so they, but they re refuse the correction in the long term. And then he, he says, surely these are poor. So he starts to think, Jeremiah starts to look at the people and he says, well, maybe this is just an issue with the poor and foolish, you know, the uneducated people. But it wasn't because he goes on and he says, you know, I will go to the great men. I'll go to the leaders of the nation and see what they're like. But it says in the end of verse five that they have broken the yoke. And so they had, you know, God in his law, he puts a restraint on the people. And so it's kind of like a yoke, right? So even these great men had broken out of that restraint, and they had begun to uh, go into the idolatrous practices of the nations around them. Um, so, you know, and I think for us, we need to remember that. The, the Bible said, Paul said that um, the law was a tutor. In other words, it teaches us right and wrong, and it gives us a clear sense of measurement of our lives versus uh, God's standard. And what we find is an unachievable standard from our own experience that we all fall short of the glory of God, as the Bible says. So the law is a tutor. Now, that's, that law is actually written in our hearts as a conscience. You have a conscience. You know it's wrong to murder. You don't have to even be told that. You just know it is. So God gives us the law itself and bears witness to our conscience, um, and it lines up there. And so he, he's able to, to measure us against that. Um, so these people, the, the, the rich and the wealthy and the educated and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem more specifically, they had broken out of the bonds, the restraints, the tutor of the law, 
And therefore, they, you know, and that's what happens. When you break out of God's restraint, you sort of become uh, empowered to do more wickedness. I was talking to someone at work, a coworker, about this. I was kind of witnessing to her. And um, we were talking about that, like how even as, in, like, and she's not, I don't think she's saved, so she doesn't know the Lord. Uh, but she's, she, we were talking about her son and some things, and I was explaining that, you know, there can be this restraint in our lives even before we come to Christ, you know. And she was kind of agreeing with that, that she had that as growing up. And I was explaining that my wife, too, had a, a similar thing. And I was talking about someone else that I know that had a similar thing, that even though they were in the world and they were doing bad things, there was still this certain restraint that they had. And sometimes if you break out of that restraint, you're actually, and I remember in my own life, break at certain points, I broke out of God's restraint, and it was a really bad decision, right? And then I had, I've, in some ways, still reaping the, the decisions of my, my poor decisions from the past, right? And so as a nation, though, they had done this. They had made a poor decision, and then they had broken out into even more sin. And that's the deception of it, is that when we go into sin, it actually darkens our, our discernment towards uh, the bad part of sin, right? There's a, there's a bad part to every sin, a repercussion to every sin. And when we break out of the yoke God's given us, the restraint of our conscience, we become darkened uh, and, and foolish towards uh, other sins, right? So we're more susceptible to either worse sins or other sins or... Whether, you know, I can remember doing something bad and then lying to cover it up. Like, that's an example. Like, I just felt empowered to lie because I didn't want to, uh, other people to discover my foolish decision that I made, right? Um, so he continues to go on. And then, you know, he explains in verse 6 that there were things starting to happen that were sort of like obvious. Like, all of a sudden, there's these wild animals. Actually, this happened in the northern kingdom as well. There's wild animals that were picking off some of these rulers. And it seemed like this weird trend. And, you know, we're foolish not to think that some of those things doesn't happen in people's lives to get their attention by God. God uses the world. God is in the whirlwind. God is in the disasters in life. Not in attempt. He's not like... Uh, trying to pour out like this curse and, and anger. Oh, sometimes that are, there is that, but a lot of times it's to try to get people's attention because they're on a path that leads to destruction. So he allows pain and suffering and difficulty and challenges to get their attention, as Lee was doing here. So moving on here, just to go get through this here, um, he, Jeremiah continues in verse 7, 8, 9, how that they had gone after these other gods, that they were like, in verse 8, they were like stallions who neighed after their neighbor's wife, you know, that they were lusting. Not, and this is, a, this is an analogy, you know, like if you were to lust after your neighbor's wife, right? The analogy is they were looking at their neighbors, the gods of their neighbors. They were seeing maybe the empire that formed with the Assyrians, that they grew and grew and grew in power and chariots and armies. And they, they would attest that, or they would give the count to that to these false gods, that these gods must be prospering them. And they long for that same thing. Um, 
or, you know, the blessings that Egypt had and their gods, or whatever, whatever the nations that surrounded them, there was this constant temptation to go after those same gods and to believe the lie that for some reason that they seemed to believe that there was something to these statues that they would, they would worship. <clears throat> and then he explains in verses 10 through 13, um, just furthermore the treachery and the falseness and that they're, they're doing one thing and saying one thing but doing another, the hypocrisy in their lives. And then he says in verse 14 through 17, he explains to them, um, you know, that another nation was going to come and take them away, right? And that would be Babylon, right? Babylon would eventually come and take, take away the nation of Israel into their own land. Um, and it, it would be a mighty nation, more powerful than they, and God would not. In some cases in the Old Testament, God would protect his people, because even to a nation that was more powerful than them. I think of the Midianites with Gideon, you know, Gideon and one, just a real small army had victory over the Midianites because God was with them. So many other examples, too, through the Old Testament where God protected his people, but God would remove his protection on his people and on the land, um, and they would instead be taken over by the very nation that they were longing to be like, which is what verse 19 is. And we see in verse 18 that there's grace in this, and I'll try to explain that. But in verse 19, we see, just as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve aliens in a land that is not yours. You're going to get what you want, Israel. That's basically what God is saying. And, but, see, Man in his sinfulness wants to keep the goodness of God with, you know, not lose the goodness of God, but maintain his own will in the matter. In other words, for Israel, they wanted the blessings of God in the land, but they wanted the gods of the lands around them. So they didn't want the God of Israel. They didn't want the constraints of the law. And, uh, it, you know, what Israel, what Israel failed in is no different than us. You know, it's just a national picture of what we do in our hearts, right, with God. We want the goodness of God in, in this world. We want the rain to fall upon the crops so we can all eat and that our animals can eat so we can eat the animals, right? We want the goodness of God and blessings in our finances and in our families, but oftentimes we don't want the God, the creator. We want the blessings of a peaceful land, but we don't want the law that restrains us. Um, and the proof, you know, the ultimate proof of that is that one day Jesus is going to set up his kingdom and reign for 1,000 years. And what happens at the end of that when he is actually physically on this earth reigning in Jerusalem? There's a rebellion. A rebellion comes up and against Jesus and against his people will be actually as believers, those who believe will rule and reign with him. They'll rebel again. There'll be a people that are under the law, Jesus' law, and he'll be ruling with an iron rod, and yet they will rebel 
and they'll be led by Satan. Satan will come out of the pit, um, and he'll lead a final rebellion, and that's when afterwards Jesus will say, that's it, and uh, he'll be cast in the lake of fire. Um, which the beast and the Antichrist a thousand years earlier were already cast in there, so they're waiting there. You know. Um, but it just shows that even with Jesus himself, and the ultimate, you know, truth and law and justice in the world that could happen, and true peace in the world where there's no war, that man could still rebel in the midst of that, right? And that's how our hearts are. I'm, I'm that way. You know, I, I can't say I'm better than that, right? I, I've, I've known the word all my life. I've been taught the word since I was a kid, yet I've actively rebelled at times against God's law. Thankfully, he's merciful, he gives us an attempt to, to tr- transform. I will not make a complete end of you, you know. He will give us every opportunity he can to bring us back to himself. You know, C.S. Lewis, um, I, I, I think he has a very good, interesting insight into, um, uh, you know, just man's heart. And, and a sense of things, and I think part of it's because he's read a lot of literature, both ancient literature and more recent in his lifetime. But he wrote that there are only two kinds of people in the end, those people who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. This brings into question, you know, some unfavorable subjects. We don't want to talk about the idea of hell. But there's a parallel here, right? There's a parallel in... Um, the nation of Israel where they've gone after uh, the, the, the gods of the, the nations around them. Their hearts have been drawn away by it and they end up there in Babylon. They've been given what they wanted. It's like they had to have their will done and they wouldn't, despite God's warnings, through these two witnesses. There's two witnesses here, interestingly enough. There's Jeremiah who gives a message and there's Josiah, who is actually the leader and does it, you know. And so they just saw my son out there dancing. <laughs> Little distracting, right? <laughs> so there's two witnesses here, you know. Jeremiah and Josiah both are witnessing against the nation, and yet they hold on to it. They don't, they don't truly repent. Um, and so with that parallel between with hell is okay we've been given opportunities to turn to Jesus in our lives right we give we get, we're given opportunities to come to Christ to be born again and that opportunity is by the witness of the Holy Spirit and through the witness of people's lives like many of you and me are Christians and we say, you know, I've been born again by Jesus Christ. I, I live and I have new life because he's tra- changed me. He's cleansed me of my sins, right? So that witness of us and the Holy Spirit into the lives of the unbelieving world, it, it shows them and makes clear the truth. Just like Jeremiah brought the truth here, our lives and the witness of the Holy Spirit brings uh, witness to who Jesus is because he doesn't, 
physically exist on this earth. We are his body, right? So we exist to be the witness to the world. The light of the, we are the light of the world. He was the original light of the world. Now we take that light and we shine it. And so as our lives are a witness to that, people have opportunities to turn to Christ. And that's why it's so important that we have this compassion towards the lost. The, ultimately, you know, people will be judged for, uh, before God because they rejected Christ. You know, all, all of our unrighteous deeds have been forgiven through Christ, through the blood that he shed on the cross and through his resurrection. But if we don't have that answer, then all we have is our sins that have piled up, and many they are. And, but the ultimate sin that can't be forgiven is this idea that you reject Christ. That's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It speaks of that in John, in the book of John. So whether it's an outright rebellion or an ignorance or a deception, all of those things fall under the bucket of there's this fate that the lost have. And what they're ultimately going to be given is, because they've rejected Christ, whether it's because of deception or anything like that, they're given an, they've been given an opportunity to receive Christ, and they've rejected it. And so God is going to give them, like C.S. Lewis said, he's going to give them, thy will be done. You didn't want Christ, so this is eternity without Christ. And unfortunately... Just like for the, for the Jews of Israel, whose blessing was tied through the covenant to the land and to the law, um, the blessing of the milk flowing with, you know, or the land flowing with milk and honey, right? The blessings of an inheritance passed down and the blessings of, um, I will, you know, God's blessing upon his people, that God's, you know, through Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, Right? All of those blessings would be taken away. Um, actually, not all of them, because God in part took them away as they went under the, nations, the nation of Babylon. He actually said, I will not make a full end. And he decided, I'm going to bring them back into the land eventually. So God was still being gracious even in that judgment, right? But for the ultimate judgment, which is, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. So those that don't believe in him will perish, right? That is what the ultimate judgment is, right? And it's, it's an eternal and infinite punishment because it's a rejection of an eternal, infinite God who's demonstrated that infinite love through the cross. You know, that's why, it's, that's why it's such a severe punishment, because people have rejected an infinite love through the cross. But the problem with us is that there's this deception, right? And this deception happens on so many levels. It still even happens to us as believers. We get deceived. Satan, Satan dece you know, I, I know this is a heavy message at times with, with judgment, right? Whenever you talk about judgment, it's pretty heavy. And that's the interesting thing about Jeremiah. He did it with tears, you know. He brought this message not in a way like shouting, like sometimes it's portrayed in the media of what certain evangelical Christians are like, but he instead, he was weeping. He was broken because he knew he was no different. The heart of man is deceitfully wicked, Jeremiah said. Who can know it? Only the Lord knows the heart. Um, but, you know, the, the deception of Satan is that 
there's, there's so many levels to it, right? I mentioned kind of that as we give in to sin, we become blind to other sins. There's also the deception that, the, the basic deception of sin, that the, this short-term fix that I want to have in fulfilling some sinful thing is actually going to fulfill my life, and it doesn't. And that's what God had said to, to the nation of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 2. He's, he said, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've hewed out them cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And that's really a picture of I, sin in general, idolatry in general. Uh, and Billy Graham pointed that out. You know, Billy Graham said um, about idolatry, and I kind of mentioned this earlier just maybe in my prayer. I said, take, for example, our preoccupation with money and material possessions. These aren't necessarily wrong, of course. We need them to take care of our loved ones and make our lives comfortable. Graham wrote, but both can easily become idols that we slavishly follow and allow to become the most important thing in our lives. And so what is our idol? What is the thing that we pursue, right? And those things are a deception because it doesn't really sustain us. It doesn't really fulfill us ultimately. Um, and the other deception is, um, you know, the other deception is that God God's mercy and his allowance of these things is that they're not actually that bad, right? So that I can keep doing these things, where I know that the scriptures explicitly point out that this thing is wrong. And this happens all the time. It takes a long time sometimes for us to get reconciled in our hearts and align it with what the word of God says about some sin or anything, because we're, we're like in denial, you know? But God wants to point out those deceptions in our hearts because he wants to set us free. He wants to make us new. Um, and, and so what are the deceptions that affect us? And what are the deceptions that affect the people around us? Um, Satan, it, I think it all goes back to the garden, that God wants, or Satan wants to make us think that God isn't good, that God, that, you know, God is withholding something from us, uh, that, you know, but I can honestly say, you know, having somewhat experienced this world, thankfully I was raised in a Christian home, but I had a time of rebellion, you know. And I can say that the thing, you know, in following the Lord, it's so much more fulfilling. Even though in some cases people would look at me and they say, how do you not have a TV, you know. <laughs> and I, 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 like, a TV, I just, I mean, I watch Netflix every so often with, with an iPad, but... I don't have a TV because it draws my heart away, right? And we, you can end up spending time. And it's not that you can't have a TV, right? It's like Billy Graham just said. It's not, that's not what it's about. But for me, I know it draws my heart away, right? And I want to focus on other things, right? Um, but the deception from Satan is that these, these things that you're being held, something's being held back from you. You don't have the knowledge that you should have about the way things are, you know, uh, the knowledge of good and evil. But that's all deception. For in holiness, we find true purity, true fulfillment in knowing Christ. And I think, you know, we talked about God gives you what you want. But there, there is another side of this. Turn with me to, to um, Psalm 57. <clears throat> I want to contrast this whole thing. 
with David. You know, Josiah is a great example of that contrast in that he wholly followed the Lord. But I think that David's actually a greater example, even though because David was, you know, he's more of a failure like me, you know. (laughs) Whereas Josiah, you don't really read too much wrong with him. Whereas David has some big errors. Um, and God is still gracious with him. But the predominant heart that David had was, I'm going to wholly follow the Lord. And you can see this in countless Psalms, this heart to follow the Lord. And, you know, David, this, this kind of, um, this chapter here, it says at the beginning, to the chief musicians set to do not destroy a victim of David, when he fled from Saul into the cave. So this was happening during one of the more difficult times in David's life. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 22, it could have been the cave of Adullam or later on in 20, chapter 24 in Engedi. But ultimately, David was in a place of hiding in his life. And in hiding, he was actually, that was one of the closest times he had with the Lord. He was hiding from Saul, who was previously, David helped Saul, killed Goliath, helped lead his armies, made him chill out with the music that he played because Saul was crazy. Um, And at some point, Saul became jealous of David and began to want to kill him. And he actually, at one point, he threw a spear at David and missed him, right, just by... And to me now, I read an illustrated Bible, you know, and it's got this little picture of David with, like, a spear, like, right here, and he's like this. <laughs> so I read it because uh, my son likes this, the David stories, you know. Um, <laughs> just a good picture of, uh, you know, just getting by there. And that's what God did for David, that he sustained him through these difficult times. And let's read this psalm because it it. it it shows what, what David's heart was like. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. And, you know, at this time when he was at the cave of Adullam there in, in, in 1 Samuel, um, he was in hiding, and yet God had already anointed him to be king. But he's not king yet. And actually, it was a long time before he would be king. That God had to basically bring an end to Saul in his timing, and David had to wait on God to bring it to pass. And I think David's eyes were just, if, if your eyes are on the Lord when you're waiting from something from him, it's not that hard. Because you know anything good comes from the Lord. If your eyes are not on the Lord, you are trying to bring to pass. And, and Abraham's a good example of that. Abraham wanted a son so badly that what did he do? He slept with uh, Hagar, thank you. Um, at, you know, I mean, he, his wife encouraged him to do it. But he did it, you know, ultimately, and ended up with Ishmael, right? But the promised son was Isaac, the Bible says. Very clearly, Isaac was the promised son. And God still blessed Ishmael, Right? But the thing is, is we can make choices to try to bring God's will to pass outside of his time. We can interpret his word to us incorrectly when sometimes it's just waiting on God. And I think David knew how to wait on God 
I think he didn't care about the glory. He cared about God getting the glory. And that was why God called him a man after my own heart. Um, and, you know, even in this chapter, the, the prophet uh, Gad came to him and said, you know, go back in the land. Go back into Judah. And, and not in this, in 1 Samuel 20, 22, Gad said to him, go back in the land. At great danger to himself, right? And in doing so, you know, at that time, David also had all these guys coming with him. And they were all like the losers, you know, the discontent, the guys that were in debt, right? <laughs> now, the interesting thing is in David's faith and obeying the Lord, those men would end up becoming David's mighty men who became mighty generals and leaders in his army who were men of faith um, that helped beat back the enemies of Israel in the name of the Lord, just like David did with Goliath. So his faith inspired other people's faith around him. Um, and his heart to, to, to follow hard after the Lord Eventually, he's back in the land, uh, and God would then eventually bring him in uh, both Saul. He would deliver Saul into his hand. David have mercy on Saul and not do anything to him, and he even felt guilty for cutting his robe off. But eventually, God would allow Saul to die in a battle and would bring David in as king. And so we read on here in Psalm chapter 57 here, I will cry out, and just take note of the praise that he had. I will cry out to the, mo the God most high, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God shall send forth his mercy and truth. You know, is there anything that we shouldn't trust God in, in our decisions, in our lives? Um, what do they look like? Is it a bear coming to kill the sheep like uh, with David? Maybe not. But it could be a bear that really wants to take us out at work, you know, that's got uh, something against us at work, right? And so there's an opportunity or some bear of a situation, right, that you can't get out of. We can trust God in that. At least look to him. Uh, even though we don't know how it's always going to pan out, but he is faithful. He said in Romans chapter 8, Verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. So just like it says here in, 30, in verse 32, he delivered him up for us all. So Jesus was delivered up by God. God allowed it. It says he gave his back to the smiters, right? So he allowed himself to be wounded and beaten for our transgressions in place of us. And so if that's the case, how much more will he not freely give us all things? And just as he said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. He wants to bless our lives, but he wants us to wholly pursue him, not the things that Billy Graham mentioned, the idolatrous things of this world that can easily take our hearts. In verse 4 of Psalm chapter 57, My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue is sharp sword. There's that picture of Saul throwing the spear again. 
Uh, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Here he turns his eyes to the Lord in praise and in honor of the King of kings and Lord of lords. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit before me in the midst of it. They have themselves have fallen. And this is what you will see. If you trust the Lord and there's some enemy that's come against you, it will end up, and the Bible is so many examples of this, it'll end up that their own trap will fall upon themselves. And not that we want that, but it's unfortunate sometimes because there is wicked people out there and they are not going to repent. They're not going to turn. And the same people Jeremiah brought a message that they would be turned back to the Lord are the same people that didn't want to hear his message and that threw him in a pit to die of starvation. And it was by the, you know, the Lord sustaining him through that, he ended up getting out of there. But, you know, Jeremiah went through some really hard things later on in his life, but he stayed faithful to the Lord through it, and he preached the message that was not popular. And I think, you know, God's witness to a people that will ultimately reject them, whether it's Judas or whether it's these men that Jeremiah preached to, Judas betrayed Jesus. And yet Jesus spoke to him, and he walked with Jesus, and he heard. And even Jesus reached out with, uh, at the Last Supper. He gave him the, the seat of honor and, and reached out to him as his friend. And yet Judas still betrayed him. Um, and the fact that God brings a witness, even to those that will ultimately reject him, is a testimony to his grace and goodness. And I think, you know, as we see a man like David and his brokenness towards the Lord, and, I, and then as you see the goodness of God, it's, you know, it's not the, you know, it's not the warnings oftentimes for us as believers that draws us to the Lord, really, just to be honest with you. I remember it's, the, it's who Jesus is, his goodness, his kindness. It's like we see ourselves and we see how short we come to that. You know, Jesus, Jesus was talking to Peter uh, and others, and he told Peter to cast his his net on the other side of the boat and Peter had you know fished all night and he caught nothing and when he when Jesus told him that he caught this huge catch of fish and Peter's just like what is this depart from me I'm a sinful man how did he get that from fishing he realized that Jesus was incredible he was the most incredible man that he had ever met and he realized that he was good and that it wasn't about all the stuff Peter thought it was. And at that point, he realized his own shortcoming. And I can say, in my own life, I remember reading through the book of, of Hebrews, you know, and there was something about, I was, I was going to a men's Bible study. It was a real small group of guys, and I had read Hebrews growing up, and I could never fully understand it, you know. And then I went to this Bible study, and all of a sudden it started to register. But Hebrews is sort of split. It goes back and forth between two things. Showing Jesus is better and then warning people about the dangers of things. And it wasn't the warning things that got me. It was showing how much better Jesus was than the way I ever imagined he was. And it changed me. You know, it was like from that point on, I was wanting to serve Jesus because I knew how great he was. And it's only grown in understanding of who he is. Um, and I think David had that understanding of God. He didn't have the full picture of Jesus, but he, he began to see who Jesus was because there were many prophecies. You know, I will not leave my soul in hell, or he will not leave my soul in hell he will, to see corruption, hell meaning the grave, uh, 
that God would redeem the body. And that was speaking of the Messiah. And there were many others, you know, that he's made Jesus um, after the order of Melchizedek. And so many examples of David prophesying of this future Messiah. Um, and then he says in verse 7, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast or fixed. You know, it's lined. It's aligned. And it's, again, not that David didn't mess up, but the predominant thing in his life is that his heart was fixed on God. And God gave him what he wanted. Gave him himself. And God wants to give us what we really want. Do we want him? Or are we deceived into thinking he's not who he is? God wants to fix our correction and understanding of him, and he does it through his word, thankfully. His word is a sharp, two-edged sword that divides between soul and spirit and makes us to understand who he really is. Where we think God is this way because maybe we heard growing up that he's this way. No, the scriptures tell us who truly God is, and it lines up. If you've ever watched movies, so many movies are about heroes and good and doing good. Or we read books, and, you know, a book with a bad ending leaves a sour taste in our stomachs. And only the, the most wicked among us pleasure in those things. The reality is we all love a good story. Otherwise, you would be seeing, you'd see more sales. Although sometimes you wonder <laughs> with some of the movies out there, because there are kind of, there's some really weird movies, horror movies and stuff. But... The predominant thing that sells is, you know, it's like these movies from Marvel Comics, you know, the Marvel Universe. It's like, I love them. Because they're heroes, and they win, and they're all like things that I remember when I was a kid. I, I looked up to guys like Captain America, you know. Um, and so the good guys winning is something we attest to. Uh, and God is way beyond that, as pictured in Scripture. His mercy, his grace, his love his justice, all of that stuff is who God is and who he reveals himself to be. And yet we all have this wrong thinking at times of who he is. And so we needed to be realigned. That's why Paul said, this is one of my great, you know, this is one of the things I, I long for in people's lives to see them come to a greater understanding, see myself come to a greater understanding. He said in Ephesians that he prayed for this, for, for the church. So this is for both the lost and the saved. Um, in chapter 2, he says, that their eyes might be opened, their understanding open. I'm trying to find it here. Actually, uh, Yes, verse 18. The eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And there's so much in the New Testament where Paul explains that there's an unveiling that needs to take place, that the veil would be removed, that we can truly see who Jesus is, that he is, he is God, and that he's good, and that he wants to be the center of our hearts and our lives, that our hearts would be fixed, not drawn after the world. And the evidence that you're, you're not drawn after the world outwardly is that you could just give it all up at any notice. You're willing to lay it all on the altar for him and surrender. And it doesn't mean that he'll have you do that, but are you willing as a believer to do that? Um, 
And so we have this, uh, again, we have this contrast that God wants to give us what we want, whether it's in our rebellion to give us our rebellion to him, or whether it's in our desire for him to give us himself. Uh, I don't remember who said it, but we have as much of God as we want of God, right? So let's pray that God would give us a greater desire for himself like David had. Father, we, uh, we do thank you for your, your word that tra- transforms us and corrects us and gives us uh, insight into the way, the reality of this life. That, Lord, you make us to see that it's not about the religion. That religion and doing good things, it doesn't attain us to anything um, in and of itself. But, Lord, your Holy Spirit, who reveals Jesus to us, transforms us, where these things become part of us. We want to do good things. We want to speak the truth because we've become like Jesus. And he's cleaned us up. And we pray you give us a heart that's fixed like David had. One thing I ask for, one thing I seek, Lord, to to dwell in your courts, dwell in your house, Lord. That's what David said. He wanted to be where you are. He wanted to be in your temple and to follow hard after you, Lord. And our heart is to be the same. Only you can do that fully in our lives, Lord. So even we can be honest with you this morning, Lord, that we don't have that desire oftentimes, and we confess that to you, that you would transform us, Lord, and renew our minds, that we would desire you more than this world. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. <laughs>